We're going to primarily look today at uh, Malachi chapter 3 as we're making our way basically chapter by chapter uh, through this last of the Old Testament books. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, wrote somewhere around the year 430 B.C. to those who had returned from the Babylonian captivity, those who had rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem and the temple that was at the very heart of Jerusalem. They had restored the worship of Almighty God and yet not in the way that God fully desired. They were partially obedient as we often find ourselves to be. And in this book, we find six disputes that occur between God and his people. We have looked at the first three of those in the last two Sundays. And today we're going to look at the final three disputes. And next Sunday, as we begin uh, our four Sundays of Advent, we're going to look at the last chapter there of the Old Testament. We're going to see that there is no more room for dispute. At the end of the day, God is gracious. He allows us to enter into discussion with him. But at the end of the day, the final word belongs to him. And we will get there next Sunday. But for now, we're going to look again at what I'm calling accusations and answers. Once more, God's people are bringing accusations against Almighty God. And He is graciously answering them in some very unexpected ways. So we're going to see again today Malachi drawing us into these disputes, into these final three of the six disputes that exist between God and his people even today. So let's jump right in this morning. The first of these disputes in 2.17 through 3.5 concerns what I would call divine lawfulness. Here we find God's people questioning his justice. Now, at the very beginning of this book, if you look back to chapter 1, you see the first of the disputes was a dispute over God's love. They were asking God, how have you loved us? They were looking at their circumstances and they were saying, we don't see a lot of evidence of the love of God. And yet he reminds them that they are his covenant people and he has been faithful to the covenant. They're the ones who have been unfaithful and yet he has remained faithful. And so just like they in the first dispute disputed the love of God, now here in the fourth dispute, here at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we see them questioning God's justice or His lawfulness. The God who has given us the law and shown us what is good and right and true, they were calling Him to account for His own goodness and rightness and truthfulness as they looked again at the circumstances in which they were living. Here was their accusation. If I were to sum up these verses, here's what they were saying against God. They were saying honoring God is worthless because the righteous, those who honor God with their lives, they suffer. They were looking around and they were seeing that those who were seeking to live their lives in obedience to God were suffering. And as we'll see at the end today, they were looking around and seeing that those who were living lives of wickedness and rebellion against God seemed to be prospering. 
This is an age-old question that's addressed many times, especially in the Old Testament. The entire book of Job is devoted to this question. Psalm 73 is devoted to this question. The prophet Habakkuk tackles this same kind of a question. Why is it that when we look at the world around us, it seems like... That the wicked are always prospering and the righteous are always suffering. It's a question we may ask ourselves in the current moment. As we see more and more persecution begin to rise up against the church, many more challenges abiding day by day and growing in their intensity against the church here in North America, we might begin to question as we look around at our current culture, why does it look like the wicked, those who rebel against God, look like they are prospering, they are succeeding, they are getting everything that their hearts desire, and yet... The people of God suffer. Why is this? In Psalm 73, Asaph deals with this same kind of a question. And in verses 13 and 14, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever felt this way? Seeking to live in obedience to the Lord, to do what He has commanded, to walk in His ways, to abide in His truth, to be faithful unto this covenant God that has entered into covenant with you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ? Have you ever had that moment when you've begun to question, what's it all for? I'm seeking to live for the Lord And yet there doesn't seem to be any visible benefit to it. What's the deal, God? And that's what they are questioning here. Again, verse 17. Malachi writes, you've wearied the Lord with your words. And in this but you say statement, this is their response. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They're looking around, and they're seeing the blessings upon the wicked, or what look like blessings upon the wicked, and they're saying, what's the point? The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer, and then they ask, where is the God of justice? There is so much talk of justice in the culture in which we live right now. As we look at court cases that have even been resolved this very week, there have been cries for justice. People asking, crying out, saying, where is justice in the current day? Even many of us within the church have been crying as we've looked at the things that have come against the church in the last 18 months. And we have asked, where is justice? Where is the right that needs to be done? We are a people created in the image of God who cry out for justice by nature. The same was true of God's Old Testament people here In the days of Malachi, they were crying out, asking, where is the justice that we desire? And yet, like us, they didn't really know what they were asking for. 
Where is the God of justice? And then God responds to them, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. He answers that question, much like he asked the question they asked in chapter 1, when they asked, God, how have you loved us? And then God says, look to my covenant with Jacob. And they kind of went, okay, that's a strange response. Here they ask, where is your justice? And God says in verse 1, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Okay. That doesn't answer our question, really, does it? It seems like the answer doesn't align with the question until you begin to dig in and understand who this messenger is that he's speaking of. As we fast forward to the New Testament and the gospel writers recording the life of Jesus, they all make reference, each of the four gospel writers make reference at some point to Malachi 3 verse 1 and the sending of this messenger. And they rightly understand that the messenger that God was going to send to prepare the way before him was this one known as John the Baptist. We see him coming and he is an odd duck in many ways. He was really the last of those Old Testament prophets that God had sent time and time again to relay his message to the people. After Malachi, there would be 400 years of silence. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene to a people who had never seen a prophet before. They had never experienced what it was like for God to speak through a man and bring his word to the people in a fresh and a new way. And John came calling the people to repentance and to faith in the one who was coming after him, who he said, I'm not even I'm not even worthy to untie that guy's sandals. He is greater than I. I must become less. John said he must become greater you see john understood that he was the messenger that malachi is speaking about here at least the first messenger he says behold i will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and then and the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts so the first messenger in Malachi 3.1 is John the Baptist. But the second messenger that he speaks of here is Christ himself. So John was the last of those Old Testament prophets sent by God to speak on his behalf. And then John says, or Malachi says here to us, that John would be the last in that line. And then the Lord himself would come. And this is astonishing. Because all the way back to the days of Moses, God has been sending prophets. He's been sending prophets to speak on his behalf time and time again. Most of our Old Testament books bear their names. Men like Elijah and Elisha were also among their number. And yet that process that God had done for hundreds and hundreds of years of sending prophets to speak on his behalf was about to end. Malachi would be the last in the Old Testament. John would be the last of those prophets. And then the Lord himself would come. So what is he getting at here? The people have asked, where is the God of justice? 
We're looking around and it looks like everybody who is wicked and rebellious against God is prospering and doing well and receiving the blessings of God. And everybody who is seeking to walk in obedience to God and to live a righteous life according to his command seems to be suffering and not doing so well. Where is the God of justice? And God says, behold, I'm going to send two messengers. First, John and then Jesus. And we might ask ourselves, how does that give us the answer to where is the God of justice? It was because of what God was going to do, especially through that second messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's answer to them was this, to see true recompense. To see true justice, you must look to the cross of Christ. Church, in a day when we are continually hearing people cry out for justice, when will the God of all the earth do what is right? That was the prayer of Abraham when he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. Will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? And our hearts cry out, when will that day come? In the midst of those cries for justice, let us understand very carefully, God has already demonstrated his perfect justice for us. It took place at the cross. You see, God's ways are not like our ways. We think that God's justice should be like dropping the hammer on the wicked What we have forgotten is that we were those who were among the wicked ourselves. And if God had done so, we would have been condemned along with them. But instead of God dropping the hammer on the wicked, He chose to drop the hammer upon His righteous Son, who had no sin of His own, but who became sin for us, so that through Him we might become the righteousness of God. He is the one who displays the justice of Almighty God. In Romans 3, speaking about that cross, it says that it was to show His righteousness. The righteousness of God was put on display in the cross to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, the Lord God Almighty, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so in our cries for justice, we as the church in this day need to be a signpost pointing a lost and dying world to the perfect display of the justice of Almighty God in the cross. That's the answer for a culture that's crying out for justice. Look what God did. Rather than treating us as our sins deserve, which, by the way, would have been just. But rather than treating us as our sins deserve, he put all of our sin upon Christ. And Christ bore our sin upon the tree. In the perfect display of God's justice that we might be redeemed. You see, in crying out for justice... We often look for God to bring down the hammer on those we think are worthy of His condemnation. 
when we need to be reminded that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is not wrong for us to cry out for justice. But as we cry out, let's be reminded He has already shown us what His justice looks like. And so the fourth dispute, disputing the justice of God, His divine lawfulness. Then we come to the fifth dispute. They're not done yet. They have more questions for God, more accusations against Him. The fifth dispute concerns depraved larceny. The robbery of Almighty God is what comes out in this particular dispute. And this dispute basically takes this form as we consider what their accusation was against God. They're basically saying this. Well, offerings to God are worthless and repentance is pointless. Again, what's the benefit of our doing the things that God commands because it looks like there's no point in it whatsoever? Our offerings are worthless and our repentance is pointless. And God says to them, beginning there in verse 6, what Grant read just a moment ago, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. This is a reminder of what uh, in uh, doctrinal studies is called divine immutability. Now, immutability doesn't mean that you can't silence God. It's not, that's not the idea there. It means he's never changing. It's the idea of mutation, which is, which is a changing in, in basic nature, that God is immutable, which means he is unchanging. He cannot, by definition, change because he is already perfect. The idea is for, for a moral agent to change, you must either get better or you must get worse. As we look at what it means for us to change, and the gospel does call upon us to change for the better, we must be reminded that we can change for the better or for the worse. But God, by definition, cannot. If God were to change for the better, that would mean that He was not God before that change. And if God were to change for the worse, that would mean that he ceased to be God after the change. God cannot improve and he cannot be less than he already is. He is immutable and changing and that is not just a doctrinal idea. That's the very basis for our salvation, folks. He says the, the very basis Mind-changing nature is the very basis why you children of Jacob. By the way, whenever you refer to him as children of Jacob, it's kind of like parents when we use the middle name with our kids. When we use the full name, when my mama would come after me and it was Robert Andrew Rupert, you knew something bad's getting ready to happen. That's kind of like what's happening when God calls them children of Jacob. He is reminding them of their ancestor Jacob, that old deceiver and liar and manipulator. And he's reminding them of where they came from and that they are not the most righteous of folks. But he's also reminding them because of his unchanging nature, his divine faithfulness and his covenant love. They are not consumed by his wrath. They are preserved by him and him alone. 
And so God calls them, return to me, he says. It's the very, the very subject and, and source of uh, this particular series that we're walking to through returning to God. Return to me, God says. And they say, how shall we return? The implication is, God, we haven't gone anywhere. We just rebuilt your temple. We rebuilt Jerusalem. We, we've restarted all of your worship. Why do we need to return? The idea is repent. Why do we need to repent? You should be calling those other people out there to repent. Why do we need to repent and return to you? How are we supposed to do that? We haven't gone anywhere. And again, his answer is kind of strange. He answers their question with a question. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Well, that seems strange. How are we supposed to return to you? Will man rob God? Again, the answer and the question don't seem to add up until we go a little bit deeper. And God says that you have robbed me. How have you how have we robbed you? They said, and he answers in your tithes and contributions. God had set up a system by which the needs of his priests, and the work of the temple would be provided for. That all of his people would give a portion, a tithe, which refers to 10 or, or 10%, that they would bring a portion of what he had given to them, a reminder that God had given them all things, but they would bring back to him a portion, 10% of their income, in order to support the work of the temple and what the priests were doing there within. This Old Testament idea of the tithe, and yet God says to these people, you're robbing me, you're not fulfilling that covenant obligation of the tithe and of those offerings. You're not doing this, and therefore you're not experiencing the fullness of my blessing. And then this wonderful statement in verse 10, bring the full tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. There's very few times in Scripture when God encourages His people to put Him to the test. There are about a handful of them that I don't have time to get into this morning. But here He says, put me to the test in relation to your finances. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What's God saying? He's saying you're looking around and you're seeing your lack and you're questioning my justice. What you ought to be questioning is your own faithfulness. It's because you've not been faithful to the covenant that you're not experiencing the blessings of the covenant. How have we robbed you? God says you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And the question becomes... Is the obligation of the tithe something that continues for New Testament Christians today? There's a lot of different views of this, and I'm just going to give you my view. And it's worth about as much as how much you paid to get in here this morning. So just take it for what it is. I do think this is a biblical view, but you may disagree with me, and that's okay. We can continue to be brothers and sisters in Christ and disagree on this particular issue. There are some who would say we still should practice this issue of, of Old Testament tithing while we are not under the law. The law is an example of how we can walk in obedience to God. 
And so just like we would continue to set aside not not the Old Testament Sabbath, which was Saturday, but the the New Testament idea, the Lord's Day as a day of worship, that in the same way we ought to continue to practice some form of tithing as, as a way of walking in obedience to the Lord. And then others will argue, no, we, we shouldn't practice Old Testament tithing anymore because we're not under the law. We are under grace. And so that was an Old Testament way. Now the New Testament, you go to 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and, and Paul's describing this new way of, of grace giving. That he never, he never uses the idea of tithing, but, but he talks about giving out of a generous heart and, and, and giving sacrificially and there being a proportionate giving among the people of God. I think both of those have merit, but I really like what Walter Kaiser had to say about this. He said, Christians are not governed by any law that commands us to give a tenth of our earnings to God. However, I think the however is huge here. It must be noted that the practice of tithing antedates or comes before any provision of the law of Moses so the folks that are arguing tithing is a portion of the law the old testament mosaic law and we're not under the law anymore we are under God's grace they are missing something that I think is really important where did tithing actually begin it didn't begin with Moses It didn't begin with the giving of the law, those Ten Commandments and the others that were given along with them, that the idea of tithing goes back to Abraham. The idea of tithing is first seen in Abraham's relationship with with an old priest named Melchizedek. And I don't have time to get into all of this, but it talks about how Abraham, in obedience to God, gave a tithe as an act of worship to God through this Old Testament priest, Melchizedek, which Hebrews lines up Melchizedek with Christ himself. And we're going a long way here to come back to a point. Just just stay with me for a moment. If tithing was not given to us simply through the law of moses then the argument that we're not under the law but under grace is not an argument that can be used to erase the obligation of tithing for the new testament christian what i'm saying is if it was good enough for abraham it's good enough for us now does that mean that all New Testament Christians who don't tithe 10% of their income to the church are in open disobedience against God. You all are really wanting me to answer that question. (laughs) I would say this. It is a dangerous thing when we as New Testament believers look at the Old Testament law and then claim grace as a means by which we might do less than the law. Are you hearing me? It is a dangerous, dangerous thing when we as New Testament believers look at the Old Testament law and we claim grace as a means to do less than what the law said. 
if anything, if anything, I want you to know this. The grace of God ought to call us to a greater obedience than the Old Testament saints were called to. Because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have so much that they did not have. And to whom much is given, much is expected. And so I will say to us, church, it is an utter travesty today that the average Southern Baptist gives somewhere between 2 and 3% of their income to the local church perhaps perhaps this is one of the reasons why our churches are so lethargic today and hear me when i say one of the reasons i think there are many many reasons my personal conviction here would be that a tithe is a starting point for our giving it's not the end goal But it's a great place to start. And I know for some that becomes utterly overwhelming. The thought of giving 10% of our income to the church. It's an utterly utterly overwhelming place. And I would say to you, if that's where you are, don't hear this as some kind of legalism that seeks to squash you down. But start with 2%. And then go from there. God will bless whatever you commit unto Him. That's what He's saying to these Old Testament people. You're robbing me. If you want to experience my blessing, start walking in obedience to these kinds of commands. And work your way up from there. God has a wonderful ability to bless little steps of obedience. And yet we often use His grace as a means to justify our disobedience. Just be careful. So they were saying offerings to God are worthless. Repentance is pointless. And God's answer to them once again was, if you want to see the trail to return, look to the cross of Christ. If you want to see what it looks like to come back to God, when they were asking, how are we to return We would say, ultimately, he is once again calling them to look to what they had not yet seen, but what we look back upon, the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he says, put me to the test, verse 10. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I don't think he's just talking about finances there. I think he's talking about the blessing that would meet our greatest need, which was the blood of Christ poured out at the cross. I will rebuke the devourer for you. I think that they would have taken that to understand the devourer being some kind of a, an insect that was eating up their crops or, or famine or something of that kind of a nature. But I think here the reminder is that we have an adversary who seeks to devour us, but he has been thoroughly defeated at the cross of our Savior. The devourer will no longer come after us. He will not destroy us. And all nations will call us blessed, not because we're such great people, but we have become a land of delight because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. The call to repentance is based in the kindness of Almighty God, Romans 2. 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you sit here today as a child of God, having been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross, having repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, and if you today would experience some conviction, in particular in relation to your finances, understand that's the kindness of God. When God calls us to repentance, we sometimes think of that wrongly as a harshness. It's God's greatest kindness that he would show us his ways which are good and right and true and call us into obedience to that. That is his kindness toward us. What would repentance look like for you today? And finally, this third dispute. We've seen a dispute of God's justice a dispute concerning their repentance and their robbery of God. And finally, dispute number six. And the last in this book, this is the last back and forth between God and his people. Next week, we're going to see God's final word. This one concerns the day of the Lord. What was their accusation here in verses 13 through 15? This is the last back and forth in the book. Man's accusation was basically this. Obeying God is worthless because the rebellious prosper. It's much like the fourth accusation that we looked at moments ago. But it's the other side of that coin. While they were saying in the first one, what's the point of our honoring you in, in holiness when it looks like just the, those that seek to do so, they, they suffer for it. Here they're looking at the opposite end of it and they're saying, what's the point of our obedience? Because those who are disobedient and living in utter rebellion against you, they seem to have everything their heart desires. They are prospering and experiencing all that this world has to offer. Again, Psalm 73. Asaph writes of these and he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Old Testament language, that's a good thing. <laughs> they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And then in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. Asaph is wrestling over this, seeing the prosperity of the wicked and crying out to God, what's the deal? Seeking to walk in obedience to you seems to have no merit, and continuing in rebellion against you seems to have all merit. But you see, folks, this is what it means to live in a sin-broken world. And that which seems to be true in the temporal state in which we live will be completely overturned in the kingdom of God. And so God reminds them once again that there is a reward that's coming to the righteous. Verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. These are their words, their accusations against God. And we're not going to see God's response till next week. So you've got to come back next Sunday and hear God's response because he does get the final word. But let me tell you what he's going to point them to before we finish this morning. He wants them to understand that to see the true reward coming for the righteous, we must look to the cross. Because while our hearts would just as easily cry out, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And we would just as easily have that accusation against God. God once again points us to the cross and says, look at the suffering of the righteous one. Look at at the pain of the one who is pure and holy in every way. Look to the cross and there you will see God's answer to the question. And you will also see His salvation for the rebellious. You will see that when the righteous one was crushed, the wicked ones were invited in to the kingdom through faith in him. You were seeing at the cross that where our hearts cry out injustice against God, that he was saying, now let me show you what justice looks like. This is what you deserved. My son deserved none of it. But he took it all that you might have the blessings that he alone deserved. That you might have a part in my kingdom, an eternal inheritance. That you might have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That you might have this word to guide you and to keep you. That you might have all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. The fullness of the blessing of God has been imparted to sinners like you and I. Because the righteous one was crushed in our place. And so we look to him. And I'll leave you with Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 today. But we see him. We see Christ who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Just notice one word today. This would be my encouragement for you in the take home today. What do you do with what's been laid out before us in God's word today? And just notice one word in Hebrews 2, 9 and allow this to guide your thinking and your response to God's word today. So we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And here's the word. Because of the suffering of death. Church, be reminded today, he did not say in spite of the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor because as a result of his suffering. 
And if we would experience the glory and honor of Almighty God, the pathway will be the same for us. Why the sufferings that we experience? Because He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. And the glory comes not in spite of the suffering, but as a direct result of it. So what I'm saying to you today is whatever you are suffering today, child of God. Whatever you are struggling with and you may be looking at others and saying, why do they appear to prosper while all I seem to do is suffer? Because one day the King of Glory is going to overturn all of that. And He will reveal to us finally and completely and for all time what it was all about. And there we will see the God of love and justice. Who is finally and fully and completely rectifying all things perfectly and forever. And all our questions and all our doubts and all our accusations against him will finally find their final answer in him. And so whatever you're suffering today, see him. See him crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. See him tasting death for you. That you might be invited into the kingdom. And then see your opportunity. To lay down all your disputes against him. And to bow the knee before King Jesus. To take him at his word. And to trust Him to do for you what you cannot even begin to do for yourself. At the end of the day, all of our disputes against God are very meaningless. All of His disputes against us deserve to stand. And yet He put the full weight of them upon His Son. Let's look to Him. Father, we thank You. We thank you for allowing us to see in your word today your response to accusation. The reality is every one of us in this room, whether we admit it or not, have at one time or another made accusations against you. We have questioned your faithfulness, your love, your justice, your loyalty, your steadfastness. We we have spoken against you. And yet, once again, Father, we remind ourselves that you have not treated us as our sins deserve. You have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. You have put the full weight of our sin upon your son. And he declared in his dying breath that it was finished. There would be no more condemnation for those who were in Christ. We are welcomed into your kingdom as a result of his finished work. And we rejoice in these things today. 
Lord, even as we might look to our sufferings today, may we see that our sufferings are accomplishing much the same as His suffering did. An eternal weight of glory beyond compare is guaranteed for those who are trusting in Christ. And these light and momentary afflictions will bear no weight when we stand in Your glory forever. Help us to see these things in light of eternity. And to bow the knee before you once again. Lead us in repentance and faith. May we return to you. And may we rejoice in what you have accomplished for us in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.